The Puritan Thomas Watson writes, If we are prizers of Christ, we cannot live without him. Things which we value, we know not how to be without. A man may live without music, but not without food. A child of God can lack health and friends, but he cannot lack Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this text declares the utter value of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we need help in valuing him rightly. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that this time would work towards that end, expressing our neediness upon you uh, to do this work in us. For your glory, for Christ's exaltation, and Lord, we know that this is where our extreme joy lies. Amen. Think about what you know of Jesus Christ. Okay, when, you, when you hear his name, what comes into your mind? Think about that for a moment. When you hear Christ's name, what comes into your mind? And then hold those thoughts. <clears throat> now consider what comes into your mind when you think about uh, outer space. When you think about the planets and the stars and the galaxies, planets.org explains how the sheer size of space makes it impossible to accurately predict just how many stars we have. Right now, scientists and astronomers use the number of stars only within our galaxy, the Milky Way, to estimate. That number is between 200 to 400 billion stars, and they're estimated to be billions of galaxies, so the stars in space really are completely uncountable. National Geographic explains how one million Earths could fit inside the sun, and the sun is considered an average-sized star. MSN.com explains how that according to a new study, there are tens of thousands of black holes at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And I'm sure you've heard these things, things like them. But do you ever consider that Jesus Christ created them all, and that they all exist for him, and that he existed before them all, and that he holds them all together? keeps them sustained, and that they only exist at his command, at his desire. So whatever comes to your mind when you think about Jesus Christ, multiply it by the eternal nature of outer space, then times it by infinity, and you're still going to come short of Christ's glory. Brothers and sisters, friends, we need to have this this high view of Jesus Christ. I, I think that this is particularly true during this time of the year because there are so many low views of Christ kind of floating around during the holidays. Our family, for example, has a little decoration that we set out after Thanksgiving. It has to be after Thanksgiving. Before is, is not right, not righteous. After Thanksgiving, but the decoration says, Jesus is the reason for the season. Okay, we all understand the sentiment. And it's a cute decoration, but in reality, I mean, it's such an understatement that it's nearly blasphemous. You really ought to read, Jesus is the reason for everything. I think sometimes our our Christ is too small. Last time, if you were here, we began to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and we saw how it's essentially broken down into two main main parts, Christ's preeminence over creation, and then Christ's preeminence over redemption, or we could say new creation. To, To be preeminent, if you remember, means to be first It means to have paramount rank, dignity, or importance. 
other synonyms we could use to describe the original word here are words like supremacy, domination, masterdom, utter sovereignty. And we see that Christ is all of this and then some. Uh, words can't fully describe his glory. And then we also noted last time how this poem is it's intended you know, one of its purposes is to be meditated upon, to be chewed on. And we started to meditate on this together. And we looked at the first section, live to please Christ with your life because he is preeminent in creation. And under that heading, we noted there are six reasons for this. We got through three last time, live to please Christ with your life because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the creator of all things. All huge statements in and of themselves. But we see that Paul doesn't stop there. And so we're going to look at the last three now this morning. So fourth, just continuing where we left off, we're also to live to please Christ with our lives because Jesus is the telos of all things. Colossians 1.16 says all things were created through him and for him. We see here initially that Jesus is the means by which all things were created. All things were made by him. Jesus was an active participant we could say, in the creation of all things. He was the agent of creation, if you will, and this includes all things visible and invisible. So this includes the powers that are seen and unseen that we discussed last time. That's why it'd be silly to worship angels or any other created thing. As John 1.3 explains, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that, that was made. Jesus Christ is above them all, and Jesus Christ is preeminent. Yet I believe the real force of this verse comes at the end where it says all things were created for him. Another way to translate that would be to him. The point being that Jesus is the telos of all things. And so to say that Jesus is the telos of all things is to say that he is the end goal of all things. Everything derives its purpose as it relates to Christ and his purpose. Everything. All things owe their existence to Jesus Christ and he is the point or the purpose of all things. Apart from Jesus Christ, everything loses its meaning. Our world is properly then what theologians call a Christocentric world. Why do we exist? Why does anything exist? Well, here we have in our text the answer for Christ. To rightly give him glory. Every knee will bow to Christ. Some will bow with hearts of praise. Some are going to bow as conquered enemies but all are going to bow to his, his glory. The world began because of Christ. We exist today because of Christ. And we know that all future events are going to exist because of Christ. All existence and all events, past, present, and future, are to Christ. All the biblical covenants find their end and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve existed for Christ, Abraham and the patriarchs for Christ, the nation of Israel and Moses for Christ, David and the kings for Christ, Ezra and Nehemiah for Christ, everything that exists. And so every event that takes place in existence is for Christ. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so we see that this text and what we're fixating on this morning supports the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Genesis 1.1 declares, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 43.7 clearly declares that the reason why we are here, why we are God's people, the reason that we are his people is for his own glory. But now here we see that in the beginning, Christ. And we learn that we were created for Christ and his glory. This text is clearly teaching that Jesus is God. He, he shares the Father's glory in creation. This is, this is a staggering statement. All things were created through him and for him. I really appreciate David Garland's comments here. He says, The only way we can ever make sense of life and find our way in it is to recognize that Christ is the converging point of the transcendent God's activity in the arena of human history. He is the interpretive key for understanding the meaning of creation, the purpose of life, and its goal. It's telos. This is Jesus. This is our Redeemer. Isn't it lovely? He is the reason for the season and beyond. We have the right object of our worship. Our world is properly a Christocentric world. Which is why I personally believe that there are so many psychological disorders in our day and age. In ancient days when societies sought to live apart from this Christocentric reality, they worshipped the occult, and so demon possession was widespread. Today, as our society rejects this view of reality, this Christocentric reality, we're not dealing so much with demon possession, although that's on the rise, but there are all these psychological disorders, disorders popping up, increasing all the time. In fact, the psych, psychology Bible, the DSM-5, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger every single year. It's almost getting to the point we can't even count them. Life doesn't make sense apart from Christ. To try to understand life and one's purpose in life apart from Christ is absolute insanity, and so we ought not to be surprised that there's a lot of insanity going around. Earlier on in my counseling ministry, I counseled a man from California over the phone, I think one of my first bigger situations. He had a beautiful wife, two wonderful kids, great job, sharp guy. He and his wife are new believers. They were struggling in their marriage. They were attending a church, prominent church in Southern California that offered marriage counseling, so they availed themselves of what that church was offering. But the counselor fixated on the wife after meeting with the both of them and fixated on her needs and so decided not to meet with both of them, just with her. Over time, the counsel that this counselor gave to the wife was that she needed to learn to love herself first before she could love her husband and her children. The counselor located this woman's center on herself, and things quickly unraveled. She would no longer take care of the kids, no longer love and serve her husband. She, he would come home from work, cook the meals, take care of the kids while she went out with her girlfriends, attended various self-help support groups and workshops, go to yoga classes, all these kinds of things. Did nothing for the home, and things got worse and worse and worse. Jesus Christ is to be the center of life. Whenever Christ is not the center of all, life spirals out of control. All things are not from us, by us, to us. That is a deformity and results, and results in deformity. They're not to us. All things were created for him. A wheel, for example, works best when it's on the axle of a car, not when it's being used as a chair or a flower pot. We were created we were uniquely designed to serve Jesus Christ and his purposes and to exalt his holy name. And so that's where our true joy lies. 
any other pursuit is going to leave us empty and so searching and so wanting. And that was the case with this woman. We can't discover why we're here on earth and what our true purpose is by pursuing ourselves. When self is at the center, there's no lasting true contentment, no joy. But when Christ is the center, then we can say along with Paul, even from prison, even when our circumstances are, are way less than ideal, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. That Philippians 1.21 reality was always just underneath the surface for Paul because he understood this truth. Jesus is the center of the universe and beyond. This reality of all things having been created for Christ then should slay our pride. Christians, those who should understand this Christocentric reality more than any, and I say that because to be a Christian is, if I say I'm a Christian, I am proclaiming to all who hear that, that I'm a filthy sinner in need of God's grace and I need a bloody Savior to die in my place. That requires a certain amount of humility. So Christians, more than any other people, should be a humble people. I think we can safely say that, that humility is the number one indicator of true spirituality, of true spiritual maturity. You know, a person can have, can have great knowledge of the scriptures. They can have excellent, accurate knowledge of theology. They can be uh, very busy in certain ministries within the church and, and be in the know regarding everyone's needs. But if they are arrogant... They're kicking against the goads of Christ's preeminence. And so in reality, they're really baby Christians. The humble soul is one that sees Christ as preeminent, embraces that truth, and then lives in such a way so as to proclaim this truth in word, but also in deed. And so their lives reflect this Christocentric reality their lives exalt Jesus Christ, not self. Brothers and sisters, we can't talk about this enough. We can't make too big a deal of this particular reality because Christ is not glorified in our lives. He's not glorified in our church when pride is present. Over the years, I've learned to appreciate this definition of pride. It's the mindset of self, a master's mindset rather than that of a servant, a focus on self and the service of self, a pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. The proud person, rather than having a Christocentric mindset, has an anthropocentric mindset, a man-centered mindset. Self is at the center of all things. And as I said earlier, it's the mindset that says that all things, all things exist from me, by me, and to me, to include Jesus Christ. He becomes my servant when that's my mindset. It's a heart attitude that says Jesus Christ exists for me and my happiness and my success and my comfort. That anthropocentric mindset, I believe, is at the heart of the charismatic movement. It's at the heart of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and all other false gospels. I want Jesus for what he can give me. And they miss his utter value. The proud person sees themselves as better than others since self is at the center. They're the topic of every conversation rather than Christ. They don't see themselves as needy but sufficient. 
and independent, and so they pray very little. They're consumed with what others think about them. They walk into a room so focused on themselves that they're self-conscious. They think everyone is looking at them because in their mind, they're the center of all things. They're devastated by criticism because they don't make mistakes, and so they don't want to admit when they're wrong. They're jealous when others outshine them because that just ought not to be. All things, again, are from them, by them, to them. Brothers and sisters, when the Holy Spirit reveals this to us, our pride needs confessed. And we all are going to fall short here in one degree or another. And like it's been said, the question isn't whether we are proud, but how proud are we and where does it manifest itself in our lives? We need to confess to the Lord how wrong it is for us to place ourselves at center. So this, this whole passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it ought to crush our pride. And it should encourage true humility. Christ and Christ alone is at the center of all things. All things are truly from him, by him, and to him. One man wrote, humble people are focused on Christ and others not on self. Even their focus on others is out of a desire to love and glorify Christ. They have no need to be recognized or approved. There's no competition with Christ or others. They have no need to elevate self, knowing that they have been forgiven and that Christ's love has been undeservedly and irrevocably set on them. Instead, a humble person's goal is to elevate Christ and to encourage others. In short, they no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.15. The humble person then is one who is in this whole Christian thing for Christ. They want Christ for Christ, whether or not they ever get health, wealth, and prosperity. They don't want Christ because they think that he is going to give them health, wealth, and prosperity. They want Christ for Christ. They're, they're in it for the relationship. They see his, his value. And they revel in reality, in the reality that, that he is the center of all things. And they actually find their rest and their comfort in that truth. As Colossians 3, 4 goes on to say, Christ is their life. Christ is their life. He is their joy. He's the reason for being. He's, he's the motivating factor for everything they do, everything they say. The humble person then is not always comparing himself to others. He's concerned about Christ. And in that area, he knows that he falls way short of being a perfect image of Christ. And so in this reality, this comparison between himself and Jesus Christ, his king, it drives him to gospel hope. The humble person then is a Christocentric person, but he's also necessarily a gospel-centric person. He can't separate those two realities. So the gospel is never far from the humble person's mind. And the more the humble person focuses on Jesus Christ, the more he understands his desperate situation. And so the more he clings to the cross and the more he rejoices in gospel truths like we see in 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Jesus, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. His heart is saturated there. And so the humble person doesn't talk bad about others and their shortcomings because they know the wickedness of their own heart. Instead, they talk about Christ. They talk about the gospel. They talk about grace and propitiation and substitutionary atonement 
and justification and the glory of how Christ stood in their stead, took their punishment upon himself. And because Christ is their center, they serve others and they rejoice in serving others. They ooze grace. So how about you? Would you be characterized as a person who oozes grace? Is your life Christocentric? Is it characterized that way? Or is it anthropocentric? Is it centered on you? Brothers and sisters, we must be humble. Humility is at the center of our text, like I mentioned. Our doctrine, the things that, that, that we must believe, even to be a member of this congregation, require humility. Theological studies, right? the, the study of God, ought to make us humble. And so by that measure, then, we ought to be the most humble congregation around. Are we? Are we the most humble congregation around? I hope so. Humility is not optional. Christ alone is the preeminent one. His glory has already been established. He is first. He is the reason for all things. He is the reason this church exists. He's the reason you exist. And so, brothers and sisters, let this passage bring you to your knees. Plead with God to change your focus. Ask Him to help you live a Christocentric life. You know, memorize this text. Dwell on it. Meditate on it like we're trying to do this morning. Study the Gospels. Saturate your heart in His person and His work. Learn to sing Christocentric songs like we, that we sang this morning. Invite others into your lives to help you see where you are prideful. I was preaching this. I knew I was going to be preaching this and saying some of these things this morning, so I asked my family on the way um, to church where they saw pride in me, and, and I survived. I'm still standing. I got some Band-Aids underneath my sport jacket, but I survived, and it was good for me. Strive to lose sight of self and know that your true joy is in exalting Jesus Christ. Enlist others uh, to encourage you along these lines. We need to encourage each other in this uh, because our pride is so blinding. The need isn't to promote self, but Christ died to self, lived to Christ. This is part of what Piper says of being a Christian hedonist. Our joy is here. Live to please Christ with your life. Why? Because he is the telos of all things. He's the reason, the purpose for all things. He is the tellus of all things, but he's also the one who existed before all things. Verse 17 says of Christ, and he is before all things. And here I just want to briefly highlight the preexistence of Christ. Christ is preeminent because of this reality, among other things, but because of this. Things visible, that is the heavens and the earth, all had a beginning. And also things invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, the invisible world of angels and, demon, uh, and, and demons, all had a beginning. But Jesus is before all of these things. In John 1, 1, we learn, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was at the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not made anything that was made. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. And then later on in John 8, 58, Jesus said to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at Him. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. He existed before all things. 
You know, the eternal nature of God is one of his attributes. It's one of the things that makes God God. Take that away and he's no longer God. It's one of the many reasons why we worship him. There's only one eternal being. All other beings are his creation and so had a beginning. A.W. Tozer writes, the mind looks backward in time until the dim past vanishes, then turns and looks into the future till thought and imagination collapses from exhaustion and God is at both points unaffected by either. But now, here, Paul puts Jesus in this eternal category. Jesus is before all things. Jesus is God. And he must be eternal if he is the Messiah. The Messiah, the one from King David's line, is one who would reign forever. So God says to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your throne shall be established forever. King Josiah came along in the line of David. He was a great king. He lived, but also died, as did all the rest. What was needed was for a perfectly righteous king to reign over God's people forever. The king, the Messiah, must be eternal. Jesus is the true Messiah. And Jesus proclaimed this truth. You see it in the Gospels. He proclaimed it everywhere. And the Jews received the message loud and clear, which is why they sought to stone him for blasphemy. But we worship him because of this. The Arians, modern day and ancient, regularly rare, rail at this truth. They, they swear up and down that this text, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, does not teach Jesus' deity. But what they don't realize is that the context of the entire book of Colossians requires that interpretation, that understanding. Because Paul here is explaining that Jesus is superior to all created things because for this exact reason that he is before all created things. There never was a time when Jesus did not exist. So Paul's whole point here is to illustrate to the Colossian believers the supremacy of Christ over all things. Don't worship angels. Don't do the things that they're being challenged to do in in chapter 2 and so on. Why? Because all, all those things are created things. Christ is before all. He's illustrating here the utter supremacy of Christ. The Colossian believers hadn't somehow missed the mark. They weren't off on some errant religious bunny trail. Other people were telling them that they needed Christ plus something. You know, Christ was great, but what they really needed in order to be spiritual and to be considered in that camp was to fast more, to observe certain Sabbaths, worship angels. What they really needed was to become a Jew or a Jew of their ilk. Paul encourages them here. Christ is the end of all things and is himself eternal. Jesus is God. He truly is the long-awaited Messiah foretold throughout the entire Old Testament. And so all of these other things were simply shadows, as Paul calls them in Colossians 2.17. But Christ is the substance. The Colossian believers hadn't missed the mark, and neither have we. People today are fond of telling us that Christianity is a coping mechanism. And so in that sense, Christianity is great, along with all the other religions of the world. If that helps you, great. Kind of like essential oils or low-carb diet. Hey, if it works for you, uh, keep at it. You know, if putting some lavender oil on your big toes before you go to sleep at night helps you sleep well, hallelujah, I'm I'm happy for you, but it doesn't work for me. But the real truth, in the same breath, people say, 
lies in science. Ah. Scientific studies have proven. Science is really what makes the, go, the world go around, they say. Science is the reason for everything, but you see what has happened? Romans 1.25 has happened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator. You see, the fact that Jesus is eternal proves that science is not the center, but Jesus Christ. Science can't be the center if the world did not always exist. Jesus Christ made the world of which science seeks to explain. The world does not exist for science. The world exists for Christ. Therefore, true science will always honor Jesus Christ. Meditate on this truth. Let, let these words here in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 sink into your heart. Let this truth blow your mind. Jesus is before all things. And as you think on this, you're going to see that if Jesus were not eternal... If we take that attribute away from him, then the world would be absolutely correct. We would have no reason to worship Jesus Christ. Christ would not be enough. We would be on a religious bunny trail. If Christ were not eternal, then he would simply be another creature. But he is before all things. And so we are right to worship him. We are right to suffer for him. Endure, endure any kind of hardship for his sake because of his utter value. Jesus Christ is high. He is worthy of your life. He is preeminent. Live to please Jesus Christ with your life because he is before all things. And then lastly, for today, live to please Christ with your life because he is the one who sustains all things. Verse 17b says, and in him all things hold together. Right? Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Notice how our text continues. If you read the whole thing, as Gabe did, Notice how the text continues to highlight Christ's supremacy over all things. That phrase is repeated over and over again, all things. He's not just superior over some things or many things, but always all things. In case anything didn't fit a certain category, if you're one of those folks that likes to check off the box, check all the boxes, always all things, which again is defined by things visible and invisible, every created thing we see and every created thing that we don't see. But not only did Christ create all things, and not only is he the goal of all things, he's also the one that holds them all together. <clears throat> the Greek verb here, Hold together means to come, uh, come, to come to be in a condition of coherence. Synonyms we could use would be continue or endure. Right? To come to be in a condition of coherence, hold together. To continue, to, to endure. In Hebrews 1.3, we learn there, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now, the word uphold here is a different Greek word, then in our text, but the idea is the same, the concept is the same. In Hebrews 1, it's, it's a word that means to carry or to, or to bear. The idea of both texts then, I'm going to use N.T. Wright's words here, is that through Christ, the world is sustained, prevented from falling into chaos. No creature is autonomous. All are God's servants and dependents. All are God's servants and dependents. This means that the laws of gravity can be depended upon because of Jesus Christ and they serve his purposes. Our planet doesn't hurl recklessly through space because of Jesus Christ. The particles of matter that are holding up these beams over our head and keeping the roof from collapsing in on us maintain their properties at the pleasure of Jesus Christ. 
And again, I can't improve on David Garland's words, and I love what he writes here. Christ has precedence over all things in terms of time and status and is a kind of divine glue or spiritual gravity that holds creation together. God did not simply start things off and then withdraw from his creation. Christ continues to sustain the whole universe. As H.E. Mole memorably put it, he keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. But this may be saying too little. The verb hold together, he says, can imply that they have their existence in him. Christ is more than the force that preserves the orderly arrangement of the cosmos. He is its rationale, its rhyme and reason. Wink interprets it to mean that Christ is the system of the systems. He is the basic operating principle, controlling existence. The universe is not self-sufficient, as in the deistic model, nor are individuals, no matter how much they may deceive themselves into thinking that they are. Even those, he says, who do not acknowledge Christ's reign and those who actively oppose him are entirely dependent on him. Do you believe this? This is what our text teaches. In Christ, all things hold together. We live and breathe at the pleasure of Jesus Christ. Again, life is going to be seriously out of balance if Christ is not the center of our lives. It's, it's no wonder then that we see that there's chaos in our world. Common grace allows for unbelievers to learn some true things, but in the end they always apply it wrongly because they reject this truth, that Jesus sustains all things. And so there's chaos. There's physical chaos and moral chaos. Edward Lorenz has summered the chaos theory this way, when the present determines the future, but the approximate present does not approximately determine the future. Essentially, what the chaos theory teaches, as, I, as far as I can understand that blurb there, which I don't think I can understand very deeply, uh, but I think what he's saying is that the minutiae is so hard to accurately predict. Right? There, there's so many variables involved that solid predictions are impossible, and really only rough patterns can be discerned. In short, life is unpredictable. But all things are in Christ, by Christ, for Christ. And he sustains all things. All things are held together by him, and so there is only ever apparent chaos. Jesus holds the physical and spiritual world together, the visible and invisible, which would also mean he holds the moral world together. So when Christ is ignored by the world, the world is going to experience moral chaos. We can think about it this way. If every person on the planet centered their, their lives perfectly on Jesus Christ and his glory, what a wonderful world it would be. People would get along. There would be world peace at last. Marriages centered on Christ's supremacy, we understand, would be beautiful pictures of joy and harmony. There'd be no child abuse, no terrorists, so on and so forth. I read a bit ago, actually, that the idea is be, being kicked around that the famous philosopher Immanuel Kant should be taught in preschool in order to bring back civility to our nation. I think we could blame this on California. When in doubt, blame on California. Sorry, Larson's out there. The thought is, though, that Christianity has produced all kinds of wacky deformities and relational problems. Let's discard that. Maybe the professing church ought to take some responsibility for that. I say the professing church, the cultural church. But Christ, we know, is certainly not to blame. And reading Kant to our children is only going to make matters worse, if worse could be imagined. 
John Frame explains of Kant how he believed Jesus of Nazareth is a moral archetype, a symbol of our ability to overcome the radical evil within us and to advance toward moral perfection. Kant does not affirm Jesus' historical existence, his miracles, or his deity. So Kant denies the historical reality of Jesus Christ, his miracles, and his deity, which is to deny the truth in this passage. Kant denies then that all things are sustained by Christ. He denies that the goal of all things is Christ, and so naturally then teaching Kant to our kids is only going to make things worse. Christ is the one who holds all things together. All things are from him, by him, and to him. He is the solution to all of our problems in this life and in the next. Do you believe that? I do. Every single counseling situation that I face, my ultimate desire is that Christ would reign, would reign supreme in that life. That's my ultimate end goal. I want this for my wife. I want it for my children. I want it for my own soul. And I want it for you all. That's what I pray for you all. Christ is the solution to all of our problems. He is the rhyme and reason for all things. When we struggle in life, we need more of this. We need more of Christ. Uh, when I struggle, when I sit back and, and can think rationally about what's going on, typically, I can look at my life and I can see that my center is off. I'm more self-centered at the moment than I am Christ-centered. I can look at my life and I can see when I'm struggling that I'm, I'm more fixated on my circumstances, I'm more consumed with self, and, and when I'm struggling, I typically am not looking at life through the lens of, of Christ's glory and Christ's sustenance. Sometimes in the midst of my struggle, Christ is nowhere to be found. I realize that I'm seeking solutions apart from Christ, looking to myself for solutions, right, independent of him, independent of his person and his work. This is why it's so helpful that we avail ourselves of the means God has given us. One of the most neglected means is Christian fellowship. Christianity is a we thing. It's not an I thing. All the U's, not all the U's, but a lot of the U's in the New Testament are actually U plurals, and so we would be better readers of the text if we were from Texas. You all. Christianity is a we thing. We need other people to help us when we're not thinking rightly. And so if we have formed regular habits of going to other people, we're just availing ourselves of the means that God has given to grow us, to recenter us on him. Brothers and sisters, when we struggle, we need to re reorient our lives around Christ. We need to learn to depend on him, not self, then things are going to start to make sense. Then we can rightly navigate through our problems. When Christ is at the right place in our hearts, in our inner man, in our thinking, in our believing, in our desires, it doesn't mean that our problems are going to go away, that we're never going to face hardship, but it is going to be the case that we are going to battle well in a way that honors him. Because there's no rhyme or reason to life when Christ is ignored. And this isn't some sort of intellectual trick or a Christian version of cognitive behavior therapy. This is simply understanding reality. It's to understand one's purpose and aim in life, and so to live in light of that truth by the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, which we have because of the gospel. If we try to live our lives thinking that 2 plus 2 equals 5, for example, it's going to be a hard life for you. In a similar way, if we live our lives apart from the reality that Christ sustains all things, if we live our lives in such a way... Um, as if Christ did not exist, and so live apart from Christ as the interpretive key of all things, 
then life is going to be hard. And so we're to live to please Christ with our lives because He alone sustains all things. Brothers and sisters, no one is ever going to come along and enlighten you with some new religion. We take that for granted, don't we? You ever thought about that? It's never going to happen for you. Before the age of world missions, people all over the planet worshiped false gods. They adhered to false religions, but then God sent out missionaries and they proclaimed the truth. Truth about God being the creator of all things. There's only one God. Mankind rebelled against him. That's why we're in the state that we're in. That Christ died on the cross for their sins in their place. And so we're to embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. They proclaimed that message. And groups of people, by God's grace, were given eyes to see and ears to hear that message. And so they were granted repentance. And they realized that they had the wrong object of their worship. They thought that the sun, for example, sustained them. So they worshiped the sun god. They thought that the rain sustained them. And so they worshiped the rain god. But brothers and sisters, it's never going to come along a day when someone is going to come from a distant country and offer you something truer or better than Jesus Christ. Christ couldn't be any higher. Couldn't be any more worthy of your worship. Jesus is the reason for the season and beyond. He's the reason for everything. He's the reason for your present existence. Sending your life in Christ is not a waste. It's not irrational. It's perfectly logical. Your joy is in this proper orientation. Trust this. We must believe this. Christ is preeminent. So let the regular and consistent existence of billions and billions and billions of stars testify to this truth. Jesus is the telos of all things. He's before all things. He is the sustainer of all things. If anything, I think our Christ is too small. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Christ. Help us to believe this. Lord, we need your help to believe this. Strengthen us toward this end. Lord, I pray that we would be those who encourage each other towards this end. Our hearts are inclined to center on self. Lord, help us to be humble people. Help us to be characterized as humble people. And Lord, let this difficulty of living a life centered on Christ bring us to our knees and celebrate the gospel. To your glory, Christ's exaltation, and our extreme joy. Amen.